So looking forward to being with you tonight and talking some about Dhamma. Uh, what came to mind, given you know what uh, has been going on and uh, with people, uh, was a, a teaching about wisdom, wisdom and understanding. We talk a lot about wisdom in practice, and uh, I think uh, understandably we get uh, we get a awful lot of ideas about what it is. <laughs> and, and most of us, I think, if we're honest, will admit to having um, imagined that wisdom is, is something, you know, that's going to occur at some point in our practice, maybe, maybe with flashes of insight, you know, and, 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 and uh, things of this nature, where there's going to be some kind of sudden, um, and perhaps rude awakening uh, all at once. And for myself, I know that I, I felt this way for, for many years. I, I, I clearly, I was aware that I was practicing in a way so that this thing would happen, you know, <laughs> so that this, this thing called wisdom would sudden, suddenly take place. And I had the, this feeling like there would be whistles and bells and, you know, just this image of, like, Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, <laughs> just going to get struck by lightning, and all of a sudden it's all going to uh, come come clear, you know, I'm all, all of a sudden I'm going to see it all. Uh, you know, I don't know what people expect or what I expect at this time, but that's, it's, it's kind of uh, of this nature, um, just a phenomenon of some sort. Just feeling like, uh, you know, I was really a dutiful little girl, and I always thought that if I just followed all the rules, you know, if I did the right thing, do what the teachers say, follow the instructions, and then boom, you know, something's going to happen, something great's going to happen, I'll win the prize, get the award, that kind of thing. So these kinds of perceptions can play into practice. It's not, it's not uncommon. I hear this kind of thing from a lot of people. But, you know, it doesn't take long if you're practicing well, practicing seriously, to begin to realize that the fruits of practice take place in a lot less dramatic ways than that. You know? it, doesn't, it doesn't happen quite like that. It's all about this subtle and gradual dispelling of ignorance. Just this not seeing uh, things clearly, not seeing things the way that they are. It's an ignorance, if you think about it, that takes the simple reality of things. And this is relentless, relentlessly taking the simple reality things and just adds to it or distorts it in one way or another. It's like the mind isn't content to just let things be what they are. Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho says that ignorance complicates everything. <laughs> and uh, waking up, then, is simply this process of, of relinquishing that tendency of complicating things. So we talk about right view and right understanding as the end of ignorance. Um, and just realizing that it's, this, it's kind of like this invincible, steady, uh, and peaceful state of being that comes when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the way that things are and we're at peace with it. The way that things are is okay. (laughs) We're at peace with it. So there's no longer this movement to complicate things. And then what one realizes is that, you know, we're right here where we have always been, but in a new way. And people who have broken through to this new way of being um, d- describe it as really quite ordinary. It's just, it's just a, 
very ordinary experience and uh, in, in a way carrying with it this remarkable realization that they've actually been here all along. <laughs> it's just being here in a new way. So in the, in the Discourse on Right View, the Samaditi Sutta, the, the, the Buddha defines ignorance, a wrong view, as not knowing about suffering, not knowing about the origin of suffering, not knowing about the cessation of suffering, and not knowing about the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So classically speaking, when we talk about right view or right understanding, it's, it, it has to do with insight into these Four Noble Truths, uh, seeing things clearly uh, uh, as these Four Noble Truths. And, and it can only be realized through uh, meditative insight. And wisdom, as we understand it from those truths, it, it also involves this purification, if you will. It's kind of a, a, a purification of the very impulses, the very thought processes of the mind, so that uh, a mind which had heretofore been given to um, thinking and acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion, gradually through a process becomes purified, and these are no longer the impulses that drive actions. In fact, they get replaced by their opposites, which are like re- uh, renunciation and, and a kindness and a harmlessness. And so the, these two things, right view and right understanding, uh, right, and right intention right thought, are what we define as, as wisdom. And if you just think about it, just consider how this change in the way that we're with things would happen. You know, if one has experienced a deep and, and, and abiding understanding of the real nature of things, the impermanent suffering and selfless nature of all phenomenon, everything that arises in the body and mind, this is the way that they are, this is their nature, right? So if, if one realizes that, then you could see that this non-attachment or renunciation would become your mode, <laughs> Of relating, because it, it, they don't the, the the experience of sensory realm, the what's going on with the body and mind would just kind of lose its fascination. You, you know, you're not interested in it in the same way. So the the capacity to just uh, let it rise and pass away is purified, is matured. And then if if we have insight into the truth of suffering. We really get that at very deep levels. And I'm not saying this is easy. This is hard to get because everything in us does not want our experience to be anything but pleasant. You know, it does not want pain. You know, there's resistance uh, almost at a cellular level to, uh, to this truth. But once you get that, once we do have that kind of insight, then from that perspective, and also having seen the, the, the harm that's done through greed, hatred, and delusion, the only thing that makes sense is kindness. <laughs> the only thing that makes sense as a modus operandi is, is compassion. So you could see, I mean, these are, these are not lofty ideas. It's totally integrated and totally clear in the Buddhist teachings how these um, experience of wisdom 
and understanding and right intention manifest through insight. So these two, basically these two um, realizations have to do with certainly seeing the Four Noble Truths, but also seeing for ourselves the truth of the law of karma. And this is done gradually through our practice, where we begin to see for ourselves that you know, acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion it has these awful consequences. <laughs> it's extremely painful. They say you, you, one is, you know, just realize that what one is seeing in that kind of experience, it, we're seeing directly for ourselves the truth of the law of karma. And as we see that, then that knowledge, that understanding, begins to be part of the mix <laughs> in terms of what um, moves us to act, what moves us to behave, and that um, impulse, those impulses get increasingly clean and pure and, and good-hearted. A, a number of years ago, I had the good fortune to go on a, on a trip to Thailand. Um, this was kind of like a graduation ceremony for a number of us. There were 11 of us who were training with uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano for about four years. And... Um, uh, we were training to be what we called, this is at a Bayagiri monastery, so we called ourselves the, the Community of Abayagiri Lay Ministers, <laughs> with the acronym CALM. <laughs> really nice. But anyway, we had been studying the teachings and looking at the um, Thai forest tradition and the um, various aspects of the meditation practice and looking at how to apply teachings in, in daily life for a period of years. And we just felt like we needed to do something special as a, as a kind of a culmination of all of this. And uh, talking to Ajahn Amro and Ajahn Pasano, uh, it, it turned out that um, the following year they all had to go to um, Thailand, to the northeast, um, to the Ajahn Chah monasteries, um, for a, a meeting of the elders. There's going to be a convocation of the elders. And so uh, Ajahn Pasano offered very generously just to, well, why don't we, in the two weeks preceding that, why don't we get together? And what we'll do is um, we'll tour the um, various monasteries in the Ajahn Chah lineage and get to meet the people, uh, who the, the monks and the nuns who live in these places. And... Uh, uh, I didn't realize at the time what an incredible gift this was. You know, Ajahn Pasano is very smart. <laughs> and uh, he, he really uh, explained it to us as kind of a cultural exchange, that we needed to know um, the roots of our lineage. And, and the people in Thailand needed to know that it was being carried on, you know, carried on into the West. And uh, that was, oh, I'm getting goosebumps. That was just such a great part of our, our experience. But, you know, because uh, Ajahn Pasano is um, unbelievably well-respected in Thailand, he's known all over the country, and every place he goes, he gets the royal treatment, you know, and, and so we did. We, we were kind of like riding on the coattails of his paramis, you know, and uh, every place we went, it was just red carpet all the way. Um, and uh, what that meant for us was that we would go to these some, sometimes remote monasteries all over Thailand, and uh, we would be greeted by the abbot, you know, and the abbot would uh, uh, meet with us and offer a talk, 
and invite us to uh, ask questions. So all this by, by way of explaining, kind of setting the scene for this, this uh, one particular monk that we met. Um, certainly many wonderful people, but we, we, we had heard through the grapevine that this particular monk in the south of Thailand was an arhant. And up until this time, I mean, if you asked me if I knew any arhants, I would say, I don't know, I don't think so, you know. <laughs> but th- this was the buzz, and I mean, I don't know, I still, how do I know who's an arhant and who's not, you know, but that was the word. And sure enough, um, when we met this monk, there was something, oh man, there was something about him. He was definitely putting out some juice that none of us were putting out, you know. There was like a, there was like a force field of stillness around him, and I remember even feeling a little scared about getting too close, you know, I was going to like fall into this deep well, you know. Uh, he was just very, very empty, and um, but very lighthearted. So he gave us a talk, which is all very nice, and then he opened the floor for questions, you know. And uh, me being the unabashed American that I am, you know, <laughs> it just is, I wanted to go. I wanted to go right to what he's experiencing, you know. And so I asked him. I said, you know, you you seem to be in a different place than the rest of us, you know. You you seem to be very present and and still and still and in a, in a di- very different state of a mind. And so I said, "What's it like? <laughs> What's it like?" And he smiled and he said that um, my mind is. Actually, I was surprised by this. He said. My mind is ever-present and filled with kindness. It was so simple. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting whistles and, you know, something, you know. My mind is ever-present and filled with kindness. And I just went, wow. <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, what that, what that is like. And then later in the trip, um, uh, I spent uh, another month with um, one of the Ajans from the nuns community, traveling around with her and being a supporter for her as she traveled. And we spent a couple of weeks in this um, little, uh, just a very poor village monastery uh, in the Northeast. Um, you know, a, a, a community of 30-some-odd families, and they're very, very traditional uh, set up with a a temple in the middle of the village, and um, the uh, lay people cooking every day at dawn to to serve the the monks who lived there. And this uh, this monk was in- incredibly attentive to our needs. He was just always seemed to anticipate what we might need to be comfortable and what might make us happy. And it was especially nice because they were so poor, you know. But one one morning at the meal. Um, he, he asked us, um, he said to, to Sister and I, he said, uh, I'll bet you would like to meet some women who are free. <laughs> we said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would, you know. And so he took us to um, a monastery, a very remote, small monastery, not far from there, about an hour. And, uh, and we met these two unbelievable women, these Métis, 
um, who were uh, quite elderly, 79 and 82 years old, and uh, sister-in-laws. And there they were um, in this very simple environment, and they, um, looking after a, a small community of monks and nuns, um, they grew vegetables, they cooked every day, they took care of the pets, the dogs that were in the, in the area, and, and they were so happy. <laughs> I couldn't believe how happy they were. They would come up, and one would just jump up and run over and, and get a vegetable and bring it over and say, look at what we grew, look at what we grew, you know. <laughs> just so delighted to, to be alive and to be doing um, these, these simple things. And my memory of that entire visit was just laughing all of the time, you know. They, they were just very comfortable in their skin, uh, and, and they spent some of their time, certainly they meditated and cooked and took care of things, but they also would make these um, seeds. They, they showed us these seeds, and they were really proud of them. They, had the, they would take a limb of, of, um, off a tree, and they'd kind of bend it in a circle and put some legs on it, and then they'd cut up the plastic um, pop bottles, you know, for the colored plastic pop bottles, really, those big liter bottles, and, and make these long strips of plastic and weave a, a, a seat on, on these... Uh, um, uh, limb, limbs from the tree and, and just so that they could uh, sit they said we're getting very old and we can't go all the way down to the earth anymore so the earth has to come up to us <laughs> so they would make these seats that were like eight or nine inches above the, the ground for themselves and for others you know and they would just laugh laugh and, and uh, she said that all, many people in their community were very old and so they made a lot of these and, and they just said, and it was, it's a good thing to do for the people who, who are old. It was just very simple, you know, very simple and happy ways of being. So, you know, being the good American that I am, I asked them too, you know. <laughs> I said, so, so um, you know, what's it like? What's it like in your mind? And they said something very similar. They said, our, our minds are filled with concern for the welfare of other people and no desire. And then they'd laugh, <laughs> no desire. <laughs> and they kept saying that as, they were, as we were leaving. They said, no desire. <laughs> and this is what we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, it just sounds so delicious. And yet it's so simple. It's just kind of uncomplicating it all. This is... This is being alive, and this is what you do. You look out for each other. You take care of things. Yeah? You're kind, good-hearted, concerned for the welfare of others. So in the, in the presence of these kinds of beings, you know, one becomes very inspired to do what needs to be done, <laughs> you know, to overcome the ignorance in, in our own hearts. And, and fortunately, we don't really we don't have to concern ourselves with how that began. You know, a lot a lot of people have asked. I know I certainly have through the years. You know, how did it all happen? How did I get this way? You know, Ajahn <laughs> told a funny story about that for himself. He, he was he said he was in Thailand and practicing in a kuti, and he was um, just lost in this morose, you know, 
thinking like, oh, we're so ignorant and how did this happen and, you know, whose idea was this and get me out of here and all like this. And, and he just had to take a break from it and he went out on the porch where there was these hanging baskets, you know. And he's still caught in this and he's out on the porch and he's going, why are we so ignorant, you know. <laughs> and just then this frog jumped out of the plant basket and went like this right on his face <laughs> and he goes oh there isn't any why <laughs> we just are <laughs> you know <laughs> it just kind of knocked him knocked him to his senses and that, that's what the buddha says too he says in the yanguchu nikaya he says um, um the beginning of ignorance is inconceivable the beginning of ignorance is inconceivable. He said, no one can say that before this, there was no ignorance. <laughs> no one can say that. And I don't know, I, I, I just find that very reassuring <laughs> somehow. <laughs> you know, It's like, okay, you don't have to worry about that. You don't even have to think about how you got ignorant. All you have to do is know that you are and, and what it's like what the experience of that is like. And the rest of it, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? The, the rest of it, it all proceeds from that. It all proceeds from seeing the, the way we're complicating it all, the way we're just not letting things be the way that they are. So here we are, you know, at the forest refuge, and you, you sit and walk and sit and walk and look, right? That's what we, we do here. And the Buddha tells us that we, we need to look and that we will have these insights into these noble truths. They're all pointing to the essential nature of our human birth and also pointing to a way of relating to that, that, that compounds of our, our difficulty. So I don't know, when I read the, the Four Noble Truths, it's just, like, it's just it's great stuff, <laughs> It's incredibly helpful stuff. Certainly, um, you know, I was going to talk some about that, but I realized that, um, you know, there's so much to say about the Four Noble Truths. and the, the bit in it that really jumped out at me when I first read it was really the, the first few lines. And, you know, this I hadn't... This was, uh, you know, a couple years probably into practice. I hadn't really, at that point, yet picked up the suttas, you know, and started to read what the Buddha actually said. You know, and that's a nice point when you kind of turn and get interested in the actual teachings themselves, the the words of the Buddha. So um, I didn't even know where to find the the sutta, you know, but then uh, somebody told me, and I... I got the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, and I'm holding it, you know, and I, I'm about to, it's like something made me pause before I opened the book. I'm, a, I'm about to open this book and read this sutta for the first time. And um, I, I had this feeling like, now wait a minute, you, this, this calls for a moment of silence, you know. Like, like uh, just think about what you're about to read. These are the words the first words of a man, a 35-year-old man, who, if we believe his account of the night of his liberation, settled into that night of meditation um, with a mind the same as yours and mine. And that's what he says. 
was no, he was an unawake, ordinary person uh, before he um, probed and, and had the ins insights. And so uh, there uh, he, he freed his mind and uh, it said that he enjoyed that for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Just uh, sat and continued to sit and enjoy the experience of, of a mind that is free. And then following this impulse to teach, he goes and follows the, uh, finds the, the, the five ascetics that he practiced with for all those years. And, and then he starts to speak. <laughs> you know, and I had this impulse as I'm holding the book. Like, at this time, it was a, a commercial on about E.F. Hutton, you know. And when, when E.F. Hutton, the stockbroker, speaks, everybody listens, you know. <laughs> and I had this kind of feeling like, what did he say? What did he say? You know, this sense of high, high state of interest. And he doesn't let you down. And he begins his instruction. The first thing he says when, when he uh, speaks for the first time. There are these two extremes that are not to be followed by one who has gone forth. The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures and the pursuit of self-affliction or self-mortification. And I remember thinking, wow, wow this guy doesn't mess around. <laughs> he goes right to it, doesn't he? He goes right to the jugular. This is, this is in, in many ways, certainly the, the, the rest of the sutta goes into uh, an explanation of, of a lot of um, how we suffer and how to, to bring an end to it. But this first bit, you know, just really, in many ways, says it all. You know, I remember thinking, no, don't, don't beat around the bush, get to the point, get to the point. <laughs> and he did, he goes right there. So, um, you know, just considering these two extremes, indulging in sense pleasures, which is really just what we see sitting here day after day after day. It, it's, the, it's the indulging in the experience of sensuality, which includes everything that's going on in the body, the feelings going on in the mind, and thought, and mental states. It's the, it's the, the constant uh, indulging and picking up and getting caught in what's going on at those levels. And and then the trying to, to force myself to clean up my act. You know, this, this, this beating up on myself from this vantage point of self. It is to, to try to straighten up and, and fly right. Or just beating up on myself when I get caught. You know, that, that whole, those kinds of impulses. And I had been meditating enough uh, at this point to be able to recognize what he was talking about. You know, that, that relentless movement of the mind. It's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? You know, there was, there was a one point when I was practicing at IMS where I guess I had been there about six months or so and I was getting very frustrated with all of this and uh, I just decided that it wasn't worth the effort anymore and I was going to quit. So like, I want to go home. <laughs> I just want to go home. Get me out of here. That kind of feeling. Maybe, maybe some of you have had that feeling. <laughs> and um, I remember going to um, the teacher that I was seeing at the time and saying this, you know, I, did, I just think I'm going to quit. I'm wasting my time. It's not going anywhere. Nothing's happening. That whole kind of feeling. 
Uh, unfortunately, he asked the right question at that point. He said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you do that, what happened? What happened that made you come to this conclusion? And so I had to think, and it was true that that morning what happened was sitting on the cushion in my room meditating, and there was like this little quarter turn of the mind where like, uh, you know, up until that point, I'm just kind of lost in it all, one way or another, right? And this little slight corner turn of the mind, and suddenly I'm seeing it more the reality of it, and more as a, as a phenomenon, as a thing. And, and I had this realization that, you know, God, I'm just sitting here wanting things I don't have, trying to get away from things I do, and, uh, and, or else just completely out to lunch. You know, <laughs> that's, that's basically the states that I've been in. And, and this was the, what was motivating um, this wish to, get to, to leave, you know. Yeah, and so the, the teacher said, you're seeing clearly. <laughs> this is not the time to leave. <laughs> this is this is this is what we were trying to see. I said, "This is what we're trying to see." <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what you want to see. This is wisdom. This is understanding. Yeah. You see the way that we're relating to it all out of these unbelievably powerful impulses of greed, hatred, and delusion. So classically, really, when we talk about those first few lines of the sutta, um, you know, what Bhikkhu Bodhi says about that is really the, the Buddha is trying to you know, before he gets into the full teaching, he's just trying to set the record straight that there are a lot of practices going on at the time, um, self-mortification practices, and uh, certainly the idea of uh, living a good life and indulging in sense pleasures. And he's just trying to get on the table that these aren't, these don't lead to happiness, you know, and and put that um, put that out first before he goes on with the teaching. But you know, I, I, I talked to the monks and nuns about this, and I said, you know, is it fair to, to interpret it in this way, that really he's looking at, very specifically, this movement of the mind, you know, to, to grab and to push away. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and that, that bit that is always complicating things. And so we're, we're encouraged to become sensitized then in our practice to the fact of it doing that and to the experience of it just to see that that's what the mind is doing. And at some level, even in ways that we may not even feel like we're getting it, to be, to be sensitized to how it feels to be in that state, how it feels to be caught in that. And it's kind of like you have to do it enough to reach this critical mass where the mind begins to relinquish these, these habits that, that don't serve us. We have to discover for ourselves, in a way, how we want to be. How do you want to be? You want to be in that? You want to be in the state that relinquishes it? Yeah? It's all happening quite quietly. <laughs> and just, sometimes, sometimes it just feels like it's all coming in the back door. It's not, it doesn't feel so direct sometimes, but it's happening. Uh, in the teaching on the foundations of mindfulness, um, he uses very similar language. Um, 
He talks about the need to put away covetousness and grief for the world, or some of the later translations are longing and discontent, to put these away, which means to to put away this tendency to, to long for and resist what we experience in the body and mind. It's, it's all like a way of relating. But he's still pointing to this relentless movement. You know, the, the, it's interesting that restlessness um, is one of the last things to go in the, in the process of waking up. This fidgetiness and fussiness, this little tremor, this, this movement that wants to identify, grab hold. So our task is not only to see this movement, but also to see the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that are driving it, and to, to feel the experience of the whole thing. So often our, our um, first and ongoing efforts in practice are, are just to, to let go when we see that we've been picking things up. Just to, you know, do this, where you grab, you let go, you grab, you let go, you grab, you let go, you grab, you let go. Isn't that a lot of it? I mean, sometimes I would watch myself at night, like I lay in bed and just try to relax into sleep. And, you know, in one moment, it'd be like, uh, uh, all seized up. I'd go, okay, just relax. Two seconds later, all seized up again. Okay, just relax. (laughs) All seized up. Just relax. <laughs> I would laugh, you know, because it was like, it, it, as soon as I'd look away or think of something, all seized up again. <laughs> relax, you know. It's such a great metaphor. That's what we're doing all the time, moment after moment after moment. So just recognize it and try, try to relinquish it. The idea as a meditator is to... to Learn to see sensation as sensation, the body as the body, see feeling as feeling, and see the mind as the mind, and, and find a way in that kind of seeing to, to relate to it with, with some semblance of release and relinquishment, you know, without this overlay that keeps complicating it. <laughs> it's just sensation, feeling, and thought. From one moment to the next, the time that we're born till the time that we die and the knowing of that and, and, and anything that adds to or takes away from that is suffering it's just allowing that to be what it is and, and many of you have been reporting just a tremendous relief <laughs> tremendous relief in the mind if, we, if you can just stop it for a few moments you know Oh, it's like getting your back scratched or something, you know, or having a good burp or something, you know. It's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> what relief. So as this new way of seeing is, uh, is integrated into our being, just over the months and years and probably lifetimes of practice, you know, we, we see, we start to see that you're beginning to relate in a new way, in a different way. Just relate to it all differently. It's subtle, isn't it? The, the, the change, the shift, is, is very subtle. But this, um, this new way of being, this way that isn't grabbing at all, it is, is much more significant than you may realize at first. Much more powerful and much more significant. I'll, I'll tell you a story that really brings this home. Um, 
Ajahn Chah, <clears throat> he tells the story of his meeting with um, Ajahn Man, a great Thai forest master. As a young man, Ajahn Chah went to see him, and he spent um, some three days with him. And what he learned during that three days, he said, was significant enough for him to, to call Ajahn Mun his teacher for the rest of his life. But he never saw him again. It was all just something that took, transpired over those few days. So that really got my attention. It's again, what did he say? What did he say? <laughs> what was the teaching? And, and as Ajahn Chah recounts it, he says that, um, oh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, you know, during that time. I'm sure they weren't together all the time. I'm sure it was just a Dhamma talk here and there or maybe a little one-on-one contact. I don't know. But the, 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 the crux of it was Ajahn Mun was teaching him about seeing the difference between what is and how you relate to what is. <laughs> It's so simple, and you can you, you see this in the in the teaching of the Buddhist teaching on the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where um, he's going through the various insights that we have, the things that we have to come to see, and the, the, there's this whole section on the the sense bases, and the the objects. You know that you have the, the organ of sense and the object that it sees. And he says, what what needs to to happen? Or the in, one of the major insights that takes place, or understandings that come, uh, is a better way to put it, is that one begins to discern the difference between, say, the eye uh, that has the capacity to see, the thing that it sees, and the fetter that arises in relation to those two. The fetter, that's this, that's the grabbing the bit that just doesn't let it be, <laughs> that grabs it and relates with whatever, greed, hatred, or delusion, just the, the relating. This was, uh, this was the key, uh, Ajahn Chah said, uh, uh, to his own freedom, widely believed and purported to be an arhant himself. And this was the teaching that uh, opened that whole process up so it's very important. You know, it's, I mean, we say it over and over again, and it can sound like a broken record sometimes. Discern the distinction between what's happening and how you're with it. That's where all the action is, <laughs> you know, as a meditator. Look, look and see. And, and notice the experience of the way that you're with it. Feel that. And that everything proceeds from that. Everything will proceed from that. So it's, it, it's, we have to know that we are all in this process and we're all doing very well. <laughs> we're all seeing uh, this. It, it, it may feel like it comes and goes a lot of the time. You know, sometimes it, it feels like you're seeing it so clearly. And then in two seconds later, like the tightening and the loosening and tightening and loosening, it's like it's all gone, you know. And um, but just recognize that um, this is actually part of the process. This is actually one hundred percent normal. You know the 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 
is the stabilization of this insight, this way of discerning things, uh, takes time. We've been seeing things out of ignorance for so long, you know, that this this new and radical shift in perspective, uh, it, 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 it just takes time to stabilize in the system. So you have these feelings of, of, of going in and out and going in and out and, and trying, just try not to be, um, trying not to be frustrated by that. Just look and see. Uh, the, see the difference between the still mind and the mind that's perturbed. Right there. That's what you want to see. The difference between the still mind and the mind that's perturbed. And that difference will be this grabbing. That's the, it's the grabbing. And I'm not saying it's easy to see. It's, it, it can be hard to see, especially at first. It's kind of like falling asleep. Is that moment where you, one, one minute you're awake, the next minute you're not. You're gone, you know. It's like that, isn't it? And lots of times we just come, come in on it after we've been gone for a while. At one point in my in my practice, when I was sitting long term at IMS, I I got uh, fascinated with that moment of falling asleep, and I just I wanted to see it, <laughs> you know. I wanted to understand it and see. It. I did some crazy things in my practice, not necessarily things that I would recommend, but um, you know, you do these things. You have to figure things out for yourself. So this one night, um, I made this determination that I was going to stay up by golly. And I was going to be so mindful that I was going to mindfully see sleep happen. You know? It's crazy determination, but that's what I wanted to see. What, what is this experience of going out to lunch, you know? And so I did. I sat in the hall, and I sat, and I sat, and I sat. And uh, then about 4 o'clock in the morning, the body just went, mm. <laughs> it just did a dive bomb, and I, and I hit my head on the floor, um, you know, and that was back when those floors, the floor was those hard tiles, you know, and I really busted my head open, <laughs> and, I, and then I thought, it was like it took that for me to say, oh, you don't see it. <laughs> That's why they call it going asleep. That's why they call it not waking up, you know, not being awake. You don't see it, you know. A lot of the times it's like that. It, it's, you, you, you just don't see it. But it becomes easier and easier, doesn't it? You begin to become sensitized, and the kind of practice that you're doing here is just perfect for be, being able to see the... You know, it's, it's like... I would feel it sometimes in my own practice. I, I remember when I was doing mental noting, I, uh, I actually was noted one time about to suffer. <laughs> you know, because I, I, we become so sensitized to the, the bit that was about to grab hold. Yeah? So fortunately, we can see it, and we do. And uh, it gets stronger and stronger. And you, your capacity just to be able to maneuver around those impulses gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I was experiencing at one time, it was like, almost like a like being on a, on a railroad track and I'm, I'm going down the track and I'm about to go in this direction and somebody throws the switch and I go that way. I'm about to go into greed, hatred, and delusion and I go into renunciation, harmlessness, and compassion. <laughs> you know? 
it, it just it starts to like it's almost like the system just starts to tweak itself and maneuver around these um, unskillful impulses because you can feel them you can you get very sensitized to them So as I said the other night, it's really good to make peace with the, the periods of going in and out. Just to, I really want to emphasize that because um, we can take it, we can glom onto those and get very frustrated in practice. You know, just know that this is actually all very much a part of the process. You know, it's all like Ajahn Chito always says, it's all part of going up the mountain. <laughs> You know, sometimes it, you, you climb and sometimes you withdraw and sometimes you have to go back to base camp, you know. And then, you, then you, it's all part of going up the mountain. So, and just to encourage you that, um, you know, it, it, one, you don't really lose it once you see it. You don't really lose it. It just kind of can go into hiding a little bit. And, and one thing I thought that might be worth mentioning, too, is that... Um, you know, sometimes <clears throat> it's very helpful to consider if you're feeling like uh, it's it's not going well, I'm losing it, I could see it so clearly and I'm not seeing it so clearly now. But just to pan back a little bit and look at a bigger picture and consider other factors that might be going on in, in our lives in those moments. You know, we're, we're, uh, sometimes it's like um, we're very tired or we're hungry or... Um, the mood in the mind has been um, drifty or dreamy or maybe, uh, you know, things of this nature that, that one can actually point to. When, when these factors or these conditions exist, it's, it's harder to see clearly. You know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's all causes and conditions. It's not personal, you know. It's not like you've lost it or uh, never going to get it back again. One hasn't lost it. So it's in, sometimes we can feel frustrated to the point of throwing in the towel, as I did that, that time. But really uh, recognizing that place of throwing in the towel is actually a really good place. <laughs> because what, you're, what we're relinquishing in that experience is this sense of self that thinks it's doing the practice. It thinks it's controlling it and managing it and directing it all. And that's what's getting frustrated. Is actually, at this point, if you've got that feeling of, oh, I just it's so humbled in the presence of it all, that's good. <laughs> you, want, you want that. It's, it's, uh, you kinda, it's kind of like you want to be defeated in a way. It's, it's, it's dark night of the soul kind of stuff. But this sense of, of self may not go too easily into the grave. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's just up to us to hang in there, you know. And I've often said that um, the, the unawakened mind is ignorant, but it's not stupid. <laughs> if you just look, if you just keep that looking going, you'll see. You have to have faith in that and, and trust that. It's all in that. And, and then holding that looking, holding that... Um, capacity of, of knowing and seeing what's going on, holding it in a very relaxed state and a very loving state. That's the ticket. It's not any more than that. We can make it more if we want, but then we're back in the soup. 
It's, it's really not any more than that. And fortunately, we don't have to do anything to wake up. You know, it's, thank goodness. I, I, I feel like if, if, I, if my waking up was dependent on me, <laughs> I'd be in deep doo-doo, you know. It's like, no, uh, I can't do it. But it's, it's, it's not a job for the self. It's a, it's a job for mindfulness. Relaxed awareness with a good heavy dose of kindness. Yeah? Just keep working on that and it, and it all comes together. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. Shall we end with the sharing of blessings? And don't forget these two new words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.